Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the bi-weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe, how are you? I'm good. How are you? What a strange Easter weekend this has been. I actually had a really nice Easter break. It was so nice to just not work. So I'm super chilled after oh Easter because I was very anxious before. Were you? Oh, what you had you had built your Corona crescendo? Yeah, is that what they're calling it? So I, I think I just coined it. Do you love it? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> Corona crescendo. <laughs> Uh, no, it's true. I was reading about like, or a colleague was saying to me that apparently like week three, four is when a lot of people started to feel more anxious about what's going on. So I was definitely not feeling great last week at all. And I'm not an anxious person. So to have those feelings was like, oh my God, stressful. Yeah. So I just needed to rest and relax, which I did over the Easter break. I actually worked I know I've spoken about it several times on the podcast, but we were obviously supposed to be on our honeymoon at the moment. And part of the reason that we had chosen to to have our honeymoon around Easter was because I only get 20 days annual leave. So wanted to be able to not have to use up my entire allowance. But how did you work on a public holiday? So I worked on the, the Friday and the Monday, and then I'll just take those days as holiday later on in the year instead. Oh. Because Easter isn't a holiday everywhere. And also a lot of clients were working because I think that a lot of people, myself included, were like, oh, my God, I can't even do anything on this bank holiday. So, yeah, I might as well be doing my emails, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, no, I, I did not go into my life. Like, no, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely not. And then I took today off as well. Oh, nice. I took today off as like paid time off. And then a colleague was like calling me. I'm like, not today, not answering. <laughs> Called me, left a message, left a post for me on the internal system, sent me an email, ignored. <laughs> That's very important. <laughs> you like literally came back to the house, did not let him in. Um... <laughs> nope. <laughs> No, oh, oh, not today. Oh, my God. I feel like I've gone the opposite way and probably maybe some, like, self-care time or me time would be good. But I think that I find the day so long when I can't leave the house that I'm a bit like, oh, I'd nearly prefer to have something that gives a bit more structure to the day because I don't want to watch TV. I mean, we don't have a TV. But, like, I don't want to just sit in front of, like, Netflix or something like that and just be kind of mindless. Yeah. Because I end up getting so stressy then by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, you sound like a dickhead when you say things like that. And people are like, oh, don't judge me for watching television. And I'm like, I really don't. But Yeah, I think the key thing is having a routine. Mm. Um, and obviously, during the week, you have that routine with your work. Yes. And then on the weekend you know, it's lost and then maybe there's all this time to fill. I was reading over the Easter weekend. So I finished Caroline Perez's book, Invisible Women. Oh, yes. You were talking about that. Uh, epic. Epic. Finished that on the weekend. So, really? so, so good. I highly recommend this book. And then I'm so obsessed with her that like, I follow her, her on Instagram now. She had like an Instagram live last week. I was stalking her on her Instagram live and then <laughs> I signed up to her newsletter and whew, I'm all in <laughs> so you recommend because we touched on this last week during our last episode and you said that you were reading this book so 
you yeah. would recommend checking her out. I definitely recommend the book because what it does is put the gender data gap into a global context. Mm-hmm. And I always say this to you that like with white feminists, the primary focus of white feminists is abortion and like contraception. Mm. And those things are important. But then when you read this book, you realize that everything from like urban planning to medicine to your professional career to technology, like women are underserved, underrepresented, and a lot of the time women are invisible. Mm-hmm. So if you take urban planning as an example, she was saying how in some parts of the world, women don't even have access to enough toilets. Yeah, I remember right? you saying this. And then so what's happening is they're having to go to the toilet in public spaces. And then that also increases violence against women. So these women are being like sexually and just violently assaulted. So you forget sometimes, because obviously those are not issues I'm facing, you really, really forget how tough it is for women. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously one of the more extreme examples. But even in the UK, like, there's a lot going on. And there's a huge data gap when it comes to understanding women. I think that you're absolutely right. And I think that there is a tendency, I mean, now I know that the abortion issue is is particularly close to my heart because, and I think I've mentioned this before, I sat on the London Irish Abortion Rights Committee within policy and advocacy when we were campaigning for the repeal of the Eighth Amendment in Ireland, which restricted access to safe legal abortion in Ireland. And so I think that sometimes as well, when we think about reproductive rights and reproductive autonomy, it's through this kind of dystopian lens of the kind of the pink slash white feminism right of the US where Republican senators are always threatening to abolish Roe v Wade and those reproductive rights are always a hair's breadth from being snatched away and you can forget then that when we're talking about these not fluffier aspects of feminism but things like pay equality that there are far more barriers on the lower rungs of the ladder that we maybe fail to take into account on a regular basis. But I do think that that reproductive freedom plays such a huge role in that because it ties so heavily into poverty cycles and people who can't afford to have children but also can't afford contraception or in abusive relationships and can't afford to kind of break the pattern of that. I think it's like it's one of those things that it's not binary. Like you Mm. can be passionate about women's reproductive rights and you can acknowledge that there are other causes and issues that need to be invested in in order to improve the lives of women and you know the situation that we're in is yes that's important but if a woman is going to a doctor I didn't even know that more women die of heart attacks than men and I didn't know that yeah and that thing about men in terms of like their symptoms when they're they're clutching at their their heart and that's how they experience heart attacks that's not how women experience heart attacks Oh, really? What's so that whole thing of like the pins and needles on the left-hand side of the body or whatever? That isn't how women experience heart attacks. So a lot of the time, their heart attacks are not diagnosed. And then oh, what wow. happens is more women die of heart attacks than men. Yeah, just by virtue of not even probably realising what's happening to them. Yeah, because it's not studied. Like a friend of mine has endometriosis. Mm. And, you know, those types of things take years and years and years to be diagnosed. Because the doctor mm. is like, listen, this is in your head. This is not an issue. So it's a very nuanced topic. And what's great about this book specifically is that she is pretty intersectional where possible. So 
she does bring up the fact that in the US, you know, maternal health, I guess, healthcare is an issue in the US. Maternal health is an issue. But for African-American women, it's mm. crazy. Like African-American women are 200% plus more likely to die of childbearing related issues than white women. And what's great about the book is that she's like, listen, it's not because of class, because college educated African-American women who are more affluent are still high risk when it comes to giving birth. They have a greater chance of dying than white women that are not college educated. And is this a genetic predisposition or is this coming up against institutionalized racism? That's institutional racism. It's because when you go to the doctor and you're in pain, they don't care. It happened with Serena Williams. And because it happened to Serena Williams, it was brought out like more into the public. So it's something that I'm aware of as a black woman. And you have the same issue in the UK, black women five times more likely to die than Candace Braithwaite talks about that a lot. Candace Braithwaite talks about that. So the book is great in the sense that you don't really have many white feminists who take that intersectional approach, Mm -hmm. you know? And I love it because it goes from really, really serious things like, you know, in a conflict, so in a pandemic, in a hurricane, you know, women are at risk post-war, post-hurricane, post-pandemic, women are at risk. Mm. Um, Then to sort of more kind of like, not superficial things, but then other things like, if you're in a heterosexual relationship, it adds about, what is it, two hours a day worth of housework to your life as a woman? Oh my God, (laughs) no, stop. I can believe it. So it's just like, obviously, you know, things that we consider quite mundane, but then obviously, you know, she doesn't shy away from very, very serious topics and contexts mm-hmm. as well. You know, black women do not have a genetic predisposition to dying at childbirth. No, no. It's but just... you know, when I say that, I mean that there are some kind of underlying issues that are maybe less likely. When you mention, say, heart attack symptoms being different in women, is there an educational level that we're also missing out on here where there was a really interesting tweet that I read during the day, like the reason that there is so much misinformation and misdiagnoses spread about illnesses that tend to affect like the vagina or the breasts is because those two body parts are so overly sexualized that most women have no idea what's normal. And black women, particularly in America, are so either hypersexualized or treated with this angry, sassy stereotype which again feeds into that institutionalized racism. And I guess you touched on it that because of that institutionalized racism, people don't take the pain of African-American women maybe as seriously as they do of white women. Yeah, so they don't. So that's really all it is. It's like, you're like, oh, I'm in pain. Oh, people ignore you. There's a perception that black people can also endure more pain, Mm. right? So if you have a white woman who's like in pain, for example, I've got a friend who's black and she's a diabetic. And then she really struggled. There's like a pump or like a specific type of like device that can make your life a lot easier if you're Mm -hmm. diabetic. I think it's type one diabetes. And all these white girls on Instagram with their device, like enjoying life. And she went through so much convincing them that she was ill enough to deserve this. I think it's a pump, right? Correct me, guys. And then when she got it, I was like, oh my God, you're looking good, you're healthier. Like, Mm -hmm. it was really transformational for her. But when she's going to the doctor, they're not engaging. And that happened with women in general. That's the woman's story. But then obviously it's more compounded when you are part of other minority groups as well. Mm -hmm. So I found the book, for me, really, really interesting because you obviously know the situation, like you know how the world works, you know know what patriarchy is. But when you're seeing all of these different examples... 
it brings it home in a really different way. And I love the fact that she's so data centric. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So highly recommend Invisible Women, guys. I think that's really interesting. I think that you're right that like there's often arguments made that it's typically anecdotal evidence that persuades people on an emotional level to get behind an argument. But I do think the data centric part is so important because people are always like, oh, well, you know, that's not been my experience. So I think that it's always so helpful when you can say, well, actually, it's a lot of people's. Mm. You might be just hearing from me, but you need to take this problem seriously, as it were. Yeah. And also, when you think about it in terms of, you know, like Goldman Sachs said, we're not going to invest in any company that doesn't have a woman on the board. Mm. Right. So those types of things are sexy. Like that's a sexy thing Mm -hmm. to get behind as as a company right that gets a headline but (laughs) women are very very far behind and unfortunately you know that stereotypical lens like our women are hysterical women are emotional women are you know all that stuff we have that view as well like women are equally as judgmental have equally negative stereotypes of other women as men do Yeah, I agree. And I think as well, actually, it's interesting. Earlier on today, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and we were talking about that exact thing. She's having an issue with her counterpart and she was saying, you know, I feel like I'm ticking all the right boxes in terms of I've explained what he needs to do. I've also looped in our manager in terms of saying X, Y, Z is missing. I flagged it with him, but it would be helpful if you could flag it with him as well. And I was saying, do you feel that because of this need to be like quote unquote nice Mm. your communication is so inefficient because the predisposition that so many women have is to make sure that what you're saying is palatable and said with a smile and said with a kind of a light I went with an email and they're like sorry if not yeah (laughs) just emailing to say not to worry like even before you've asked you're like but honestly if you can't don't don't even I I'm sorry for asking like you know when someone hasn't fucking excuse my language sent the attachment and I'll be going so sorry I've probably just missed it because I'm such a stupid bitch but I don't think that the attachment was on that email like whereas you know your male counterpart is going hey um Juliet no attachment And you were there going, oh, you haven't even sent the email yet because you're apologizing so much. (laughs) No, but I've started to like really rein in that type of stuff. Mm. So now when other people do it, it glares me in the face because I've really tried to be intentional about like the way I send emails. Yes. And all of that fluffy language around sending emails, you know, Mm -hmm. and now I literally just send one line or like two line emails because I don't have the time for the whole like, hi, hope you're well, hope you're. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no one cares if I'm well nobody emails me anymore and it's like hey hope you're well you know? <laughs> sorry if not no do it <laughs> so crazy. And in, this, in the book they're in invisible women basically she says that you can't be warm and credible really oh wow yeah it's very difficult for you to be sending emails saying sorry if not and all that stuff and be feeling credible but the challenge is that if you are okay with being disliked this goes against the norm and women are mad at you and men are mad at you so if a woman is not warm this really breaks the norm and then there are a lot of 
issues around that but you have to be bold and just push through if you want to be successful it's tough because I think it's such an unlearned thing like I will have to be you know when you talk about being intentional in that communication I sometimes do I'll write the email quickly but then I will have to look over it again and see how many qualifiers did I put in there did I say I'm just reaching out just wanted to drop a quick note and you can think that that's very kind of well it's off the cuff it's natural don't overthink it but actually as you said those things are micro indicators of don't take me seriously yeah what I'm sending to you isn't of value and it's interesting when you do start to unlearn that that you know when we talk about can you be disliked or just maybe not liked as much it's not even a dislike necessarily but it's just maybe not like Juliet is so nice and Mm. most people myself included would be like oh I I think I'd rather just have everyone think I'm just so nice yeah and nice doesn't pay the bills nice does not pay the bills it's very I mean even for someone like me I probably have if we were to do like an experiment my need for being liked I think is below average really oh god yeah. I, I would say so below, yeah I would I, I think it's below average in terms of like the intimate conversations I have with other women like I think <laughs> mine is below average but it still exists and it yeah. does take up time mm-hmm. right especially when you're in a new environment like when I started my new job and I was having a tough time and I wanted to be liked yeah and that was causing me so many issues right yeah, yeah. It was, and that was what was causing me issues, like wanting to be liked by people who don't know me. Yes, of course, we work together, but like, why should I be seeking validation, affirmation from people that don't know me? Also, when you see that those things aren't necessarily reciprocated and you think that, oh my God, these people are not censoring themselves at all. And like, just to be clear, obviously a certain amount of censorship should exist for you in the workplace don't be like oh my god I was blackout drunk last night but when you hear people talking you think oh my god I really come in and I try to be like this is a place of work and you are just you do not care yeah and I think this gender issue is very deep and it's very complex and all you can do as a woman is just be really intentional and mindful so you can harness as much power and influence as possible because when you're walking into any space you walk into it's like that power is like stripped away Mm -hmm. and everyone's everyone's assumptions are just like on top of you right yeah so you have to really be mindful and intentional about how you are with your colleagues how you are at work like it just it, it has to be quite front of mind and you have to stop saying sorry if not in emails like if all of our <laughs> listeners stop saying oh it's okay don't worry if you can't like, yeah stop offering that I know do stop offering that guys don't even say it in the email yeah, don't even say let it. them tell you it won't suit before yeah. you say oh um <laughs> I can come to your offices like just <laughs> exactly so I think that's you yeah no I think that you're right I know do think let's see how much time you save when you're not constantly thinking how can I make what I'm saying as palatable as possible and sometimes it's like an effort to not be like uh I hope you had just the best weekend um but you're looking forward to next weekend already and like I'm not saying just be rude but remember that it's a two-way street and if people aren't sending you the same 
qualifiers or superlatives in their email like I hope you just have the, the best time you don't have to say that either <laughs> yeah for sure so that was literally my Easter weekend finishing that up also part of what comes into that is your own kind of expectation management and I think that there is an inherent need in women sometimes not only to be people pleasers but to really kind of you know we've talked about say the royal family ad nauseum on this podcast but when we talk about someone like Kate Middleton versus Meghan Markle there is a real praising there's actually a New Yorker article out about this today which is why it was at the forefront of my mind but when they're praising Kate Middleton one of the things that they say about her is that she's just like ultra gloss as in there's nothing of a huge amount of content there but she is just like a blank slate onto which people can project Mm. their own xyz and that makes you likable sometimes but it might not make you memorable and it might just mean that you kind of are fine and a lot of people don't want to be fine i think that there's an expectation management aspect here where you don't have to like just neutralize yourself to succeed like i also think that when you're focusing on being palatable for others what part of yourself are you losing because for every action there's a reaction So Mm -hmm. if your whole focus, and I've seen it with people I know who have relationships where you can tell that the girl is under a lot of pressure. Right. And like literally just to go to like a house party, they're looking like they're going to the Oscars. Like you can tell Mm -hmm. there is just a level of, and this can manifest itself, like perfectionism manifests itself really differently. But when I see that, I think, what is going on like Mm -hmm. what is going to be the output of all of this yeah is it going to be an eating disorder is it going to be self-harm is it going to just be like trauma depression anxiety like living that life for other people is just not good for you yeah and living that life where as you said like that level of perfectionism is always on display Mm. something gives at some point and it's usually over nothing but you completely spit out and I just think a good partner a good employer doesn't want someone who just like neutralizes themselves yeah ideally right but if a a good partner a good employer that's the the qualifier there but yeah just having that expectation management that you know what you're doing is for you ultimately and to kind of hold that intention for you yeah that actually links quite nicely to something else I've been thinking about over the Easter weekend so all this body positivity stuff is starting to get on my nerves now oh uh, do you know what Juliet firstly I'm glad you said it but secondly sorry quarantine abs that was you earlier on today. No, because I enjoy working out and being fit. What I'm seeing on Instagram now is like, oh, if you want to eat bread, eat it. Who cares if you gain weight in quarantine? This is Jamila Jamil. I um, weigh Instagram. I and thought then... you were saying something different. So. <laughs> I, I thought you were saying, I think that it's tough that everybody at the moment is like, hey, if you don't come out of quarantine with a bang and bod, like you didn't lack time, you lack discipline. And I'm just a bit like, oh my God, like, please just let me. Obviously, we can, everyone is different. So if you don't want to exercise and all of that right now, that is completely fine. But now it's the other extreme where it's kind of like, oh no, guys, we don't have to stay fit. We don't have to watch what we eat. 
blah 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 and I'm finding it a bit irritating because I think everybody should live the lifestyle that suits them for them I agree but I do think that and I would say this from say a more personal perspective I think that this kind of situation and the anxiety that you maybe expressed that you were feeling last week is manifesting itself in a lot of different ways for different people. And some of that will be very controlled eating or disordered eating. And this may have a chance, you know, there's a an author that I follow, Louise O'Neill, who I think is incredible. And she's a really fantastic writer, but she also struggled with an eating disorder for a long, long time. And she had a thing up on her Instagram during the week talking about how fortunate she feels that she has her disordered eating under control now because otherwise to be in a situation like this where we're not rationing but there's this constant thing of like do you have enough food in the house you can only shop on these times people are restricted somewhat in terms of the activity that they can do or that they're comfortable doing or that whatever the case may be and she was like you know I know that I have found it difficult over the past few weeks despite having seen a therapist and despite no longer being in the grip of my eating disorder. So for those people who are maybe earlier on in their recovery journey or haven't started on it at all yet, I can imagine this is a really traumatic time. And like certainly from my own perspective, I know I've said this on the podcast before, but I struggled with OCD for a lot of my teens and early 20s, which manifested itself in compulsive skin picking and I did that for years I really really scarred a lot of my skin because I just could not stop picking and again I had CBT which really helped me get that under control in a significant way but I literally had to get my husband to take down the mirror in our bathroom because I find this a really anxious time and we've got this huge like floor to ceiling length mirror in our bathroom But that is where I would go to pick because there's a lock on the door. And Mm. I just had to say to him, I think we need to take that down like while we're in the house nonstop because I can't get a good enough handle on this at all times to ensure that I'm not going to just start skin picking again, basically. And I know that that is possibly an extreme example. And I get the, the point that you are making. But I do think that for some people who maybe aren't totally in control of their mental health at this point, the opaqueness of the messages that we're being given and the kind of the fear mongering that does take place on social media means that this is a kind of an arena of extremes for a lot of people you know absolutely I think it's definitely an arena of extremes and everyone copes differently so I was feeling very very anxious last week just starting to feel so stressed out and I think it's more just all the unknowns compounding, unknowns compounding. And mm-hmm. I genuinely feel unsafe looking at all the press of how people of colour are dying disproportionately in the UK because of COVID-19. I genuinely feel unsafe. And it's crazy, just like the whole thing with, you know, African-American women who are college educated and perhaps from more affluent backgrounds are still super high risk when it comes to giving birth in the US, mm-hmm. you know, I live in a nice neighborhood. My life is like really fine in terms of mm-hmm. like income, in terms of the the area that I'm in as well. We're not up there in terms of cases or deaths in London. Mm-hmm. But I feel like if I got sick, the ambulance wouldn't take me. Yeah. So I started to feel like quite unsafe. So very, very anxious last week. And then I think I cope with that by, okay, let me train Mm -hmm. because these are the areas of my life where I've got control over. I can say to myself, okay, Jules, go do some exercise, 
lie down, read, like these are the things that I can do to kind of keep myself mentally and physically yes. going. And then I'm on Instagram and they're like, oh, you don't have to exercise. And I guess it depends on who you follow because I don't follow people that are like, don't eat and stuff like that. So it really depends on the <laughs> environment that you cultivate for yourself online. So I follow people that, oh, if you want to eat bread, eat the bread. But I need support to not eat the bread because that's what I want to do. To <laughs> eat. I don't want to eat bread. Oh I don't have been eating so much bread. Yeah, me too. I love bread. And then I go on Instagram and it's like reinforcing it, reinforcing it when it's like, no, I actually want to leave quarantine fit. With your summer body. Thank you. Is that okay? That is okay. <laughs> but I think as well for some people it's kind of like I, I do get it. And the fact is that I feel better after I go for a run than I do. I was going to say when I drink two glasses of wine, but that's probably not true. I feel better when I go for a run than when I eat like a packet of biscuits. But I do think that like for some people it becomes a slippery slope, you know, because also sometimes I think when you get trapped in those thought patterns of say quarantine body and I'm not saying that you are when I say one or you I, I'm, I don't tra- think you I'm trapped I'm trapped in that but it's also I'm, like no, I'm trapped in that quarantine <laughs> no but also what I would say to you is like you know sometimes you get that thing where you think to yourself when does this end like I and I've spent various periods of my life getting trapped in that same headspace and I think like oh I'll be happy you know, once I'm this size or once I'm this way, like, and you're putting off your happiness for that particular time. Yeah, that's very, very unhealthy. Like, I'm actually very happy today. Mm. I have specific goals around like, my health and my fitness. Yeah. That I'm trying to achieve, but I actually feel but very what I great and well happy. You're training for a half marathon. Yeah. So that's like a very tangible goal. So when you think about like your fitness around that, that's something that you are looking at for an achievement. Whereas I think some people can get trapped in like the, oh, I'm just a fat, ugly bitch. Yeah, which is really, that's Which is. So I would say for anyone who is listening, who is feeling like that, maybe do try to reframe it in a goal-orientated mindset. Mm. Like if it's not the case that you are trying to lose 10 pounds in quarantine, but maybe it's the case that you're trying to run 15K or get to the point where you can comfortably run a 15K distance in quarantine. Or, or 5k, 5K. Yeah. right jinx exactly. but yeah 5k go get it girl five couch to 5k I'm all about that life like Honestly. when I see people like my friends on Instagram and they're like couch to 5k and like they're smashing it it's always amazing to just go outside of your comfort zone mm-hmm. I agree I think what's been if I'm focusing on what I'm grateful for is this time where I've had to kind of connect a bit more closely with some of my friends like mm-hmm. really have conversations with them about you know, their life and their concerns and their hopes, that has been very nourishing for me. Mm -hmm. What I've also found out through some of these conversations is just how many people I know actually have mental health issues. Oh, really? Yeah, loads of people. Loads of people. So in the book, sorry, the book, (laughs) in Caroline (laughs) Perez's book, Invisible Women, you know, she's saying how like women, a high percentage of women are on like antidepressants and some kind of like mood medication. Oh, right. Yeah. And and, uh, despite more men saying that they are depressed. That's so funny. Women are more likely to be medicated. And it's like, why? Why? Why is that? Right. And so I think scaling back life, like not always running from something to something yes there are things I need to do but like scaling back a bit and just connecting more with people has been a blessing 
Yeah, no, I, I, I can see that. I also think that like we are quite fortunate that for however much I've decried social media so far in today's episode, imagine this happening when we all just had a landline. Oh my goodness. Like, <gasps> oh my gosh. Two it, wasn't, it wasn't with a landline, but have you watched Contagion? No, wait, oh, is this the one with Gwyneth Paltrow? Is this a separate one? It's with Gwyneth Paltrow, but she's in it for 10 minutes. Yeah, I was going to say she dies at the very beginning, didn't she? No, I just couldn't think of anybody else who was in it. It's literally coronavirus. Really? It literally is coronavirus. And so they even use social distancing, because I was thinking, where did they get this term social distancing from? From contagion. And it's literally just like social distance, all wow. of the stuff is going on. Then it's like, okay, we need to get that vaccine. And I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in Hong Kong. And she was basically saying that if coronavirus was a test, the UK would have lost. Oh, like, would the UK have would have failed. 100%. Listen, when I wake up in the morning, the UK news is the thing that wakes me up on my alarm. But then when I get to the kitchen, I put on Irish radio because I like to listen to the news from home. And Irish news content is actually genuinely considered globally to be of a very high standard. And so when I was listening to the news this morning, when I woke up, you know, there was some comment made, I listened to Classic FM, and there was some comment made on the news about like, oh, well, you know, there's hope within the government that by 7th of May, we will be coming to the end of our social distancing, our quarantine kind of period, get to the kitchen, put on the kettle, I've got the news on. And they're going, belief that this will extend well into the summer. Like the radio DJs are talking very casually about it. Like, we know it's hard, guys, but you know what? That's just what we've got to do. Our summer is going to look slightly different, blah, blah, blah. And I went back into the bedroom and I said to Charles, Ireland are saying that this is probably extending well into the summer. And then I'm listening to UK radio, which is telling me that in two weeks time, we're back to normal. And Charles's point was... I think it's probably the case that in the UK we are drip feeding the bad news because there'll be riots if someone comes out and says, listen, this is going on until July. But like, why would there be riots? I don't know. But I do like I I mean, I would like to think that it is the case that they are taking the the drip feeding model as opposed to thinking that despite being one of the last countries to react, will be one of the first countries back to normal. The UK is taking the denial model. And it's very, I mean, it's sad, you know, with 1,000 people dying per day now. And then yesterday I was watching the coronavirus briefing and Dominic Raab is like, oh, yeah, we've had so much success with social distancing. Everything's going to plan. And then one of the journalists on the line was like, look at what's happening in the old people's homes. Like, it's crazy. People are dying. The NHS, they don't have any PPE. Listing all of these things. And he was like, was that what the plan was? Right. But you know what? You know what? It really goes to show pretty face. Like, I don't think that's not me saying that Dominic Raab is attractive or I fancy him or something. I was in a conversation after Dominic Raab gave the first um briefing, and afterwards this person, uh an older an older woman in my network, was like, Oh, I thought he came across so well. I thought he was really polished. And I was like, but he's not a good person. He's he like she got eviscerated in the group chat, basically. And everyone was going, do you know nothing about him? Like he is literally the, the scum of the earth. But it goes to show if you don't have an interest in politics, you're going to see this well-spoken youngish guy come out. And he is very eloquent, like him or not. Boris Johnson can debate with the best of them. Mm. And if that is as far as your interest in politics goes, you listen to that and you think, Yeah, I feel in safe hands, actually. 
Yeah, and that's for me the irony is that you know you go on Instagram and like Twitter, and then you've got these British people saying, "Oh, the government's trying the best that they can," etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I wake up in the morning and I look at the stats and I compare Germany to the UK, mm-hmm. and Germany's death rate is like one percent. Germany, Germany's doing crazy amounts of tests every single day yeah. the UK is still no tests and have to like scale up to like a hundred thousand tests per day in like a month's time and then what was said on the news that I thought was I mean just factual was that the UK does not have the infrastructure doesn't have the healthcare infrastructure or the diagnostic infrastructure to test at the rate that people need to be tested these are facts that we need to face mm-hmm. so after this pandemic it's like how do we move forward yeah and that's why I get so triggered by my neighbors standing on their doorstep and clapping for the NHS when I'm like no this is an opportunity for us to like really really face facts and pivot after this well do you know what if we don't fucking pivot won't I don't think we will I don't think we will people who voted Tory in the last, I mean, the people who've voted Tory for the past 10 years, like, let's not, I don't want to be like, it all hinges on the last general election, because we know it doesn't. This is a systemic or systematic approach, where the Tory government have been cutting from the NHS for absolutely years. But please don't vote Tory and then stand on your front doorstep. Like, (sighs) I think the challenge we have and what we have to really face as like people that would describe ourselves as liberal Mm -hmm. is that the left-wing politics whether it's from the center to the left left is just not credible Mm -hmm. it's just not functional it's not fit for purpose anymore so I'm somebody that wants to pivot to a more egalitarian society but there is no opposition there's no credible opposition for people to even pivot to Mm -hmm. right because you don't have I mean after the whole labor leaks thing Yes, Labour is already a shit show, right? But what's happened this weekend with the Labour leaks report, which is essentially, I think, 400 pages worth of bullying, bullying, harassment, sexism, racism, and essentially senior members of the Labour Party sabotaging the 2017 general election. And I would just say, because I know that we get a lot of listeners globally, the UK model is quite similar, but maybe not as extreme as the US model, in that we have a right-wing party and we have a left-wing party. Labour has always historically been the working-class, liberal, maybe more liberal intelligentsia in later or more recent years, with the historically right-wing Tory party, who would be perhaps not as evangelical as the Republican Party in the US. But those are the kind of dynamics that we're talking about here. And in Jeremy Corbyn, you have someone who is very similar, I think, you might refute me on this, Jules, but someone who's very similar to Bernie Sanders. Yeah, very. Who has been kind of walking the walk, talking the talk for a long time. Mm. But we have this globally, I believe, we have this kind of in the left we are unable to not tear ourselves apart Mm. and there's no cohesiveness in terms of the message that we are happy to give it is so much virtue signaling it is so much like as we said last week performative wokeness Mm -hmm. that we lack the capacity a lot of the time to have a coherent message Mm. and basically what's come out in this report is as jules was saying what is very a very damning indictment of the Labour Party kind of culture. Tearing, yeah. culture, basically, where 
the Labour Party themselves or certain strands of the Labour Party actually have no interest in being a left wing party. They mm-hmm. want to be centrist, if not what, medium right? <laughs> uh, right light. <laughs> right light, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they basically want to bring back Tony Blair's new Labour. Mm-hmm. That and is what they see as their vision, which is right light. Right light all the way. And, you know, the reason that Tony Blair, I think, gets such neutral press is very undeserved. He was not a Labour prime minister in any kind of a meaningful way. And it's worth reading into if you are interested in those kind of things. But it's just an important point to remember because people always will volunteer that information. If you talk about things like NHS cuts or defunding or the vulnerability of certain strands of swaths of the UK, people will always be like, well, you had Tony Blair. It's like, oh, thanks a million. It was it was incredible. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed the Iraq war. Yes, Exactly. That. So those are the kind of messages that we have to be aware of. And that will pass under the radar for a lot of people. The fact that Labour... Yeah, I believe so. Do you think? I mean, I think it will pass because of coronavirus, right? Mm. Which is all the BBC is covering. I'm not sure the BBC have covered Labour leaks yet. It's been covered in The Independent, The Guardian, maybe a couple of other newspapers, but it's not really mainstream news. But I think for the people that do follow politics... We're watching how Sir Keir Starmer responds. Mm -hmm. How is a new Labour leader going to respond? Because there was an official letter from some Labour MPs demanding an investigation, a transparent investigation into this culture of bullying and so much more. And Keir Starmer's name was not on that list. Oh, really? Right. And my MP was not on that list. So I need to send him an email because he needs to step up. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll need Uh, to check and see if mine is. Yeah, I'll send it to you so you can see if your MP's on there. So people who follow politics are going to look and see, okay, what is the party's response? Mm -hmm. And if there's no response, they're going to pull away. Yeah. What's happening in the US now? Because Bernie Sanders has endorsed Biden. Yes, I saw that. And then, you know, you've got two streams of thinking. You've got one set of people who liberal... Dems, let's say, who were like, oh, he didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. He's got to support the nominee. Yeah. And then you've got another set of people where I fall into this set of people where it's like, you cannot endorse somebody who says they will veto, even if it's passed in the houses, they will veto Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. Right. If you are going to run, but then you're going to endorse that person anyway, you have no leverage. We cannot take you seriously. And this is, for me, the fundamental issue with left-wing liberal politicians. Look at how the right-wing respond. When the Tories were not anti-immigration enough, Fuck. the Tories said deuces and they went to UKIP. Oh, my gosh. They were like, deuces, no, sorry. This is, we, we are anti-EU, we are anti-immigration. Bye, we're going to the party that's going to advocate for what we believe in. In the US, you had the Tea Party putting pressure on establishment GOP, right, Mm -hmm. to push forward what they believe in. You know, people on the left are like, okay, yeah, we want Jeremy Corbyn, but, you know, we want investment in education. We want investment in health. We want investment in our infrastructure. We want to stay in the EU, some of us. We're not going to get any of those things, but we'll vote for you anyway. No. Mm. But I do think, though, 
to contradict your point a little bit, I do think that one thing that you often see with right wing politics is that they have the end goal and the end goal is getting into power. Mm-hmm. And when they all need to rally behind that cause, they will do it. Like if you remember when Trump was running for the nomination and everyone like he was slagging off Ted Cruz's wife, talking about how ugly she was. All of those things about grab her by the pussy. Mitt Romney was coming out being like, it's disgusting. I would never talk about my mom, my daughters, Mm. blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly he got the nomination and everyone is very quietly voting for him. That proves my point. The establishment didn't want Trump to win. mm -hmm. Trump said to them, I'm not going to back the nominee. You're trying to take the election from me. I'm not going to get my supporters to vote for whoever you guys nominate. I'm going to be the nominee. Because they wanted to win, it was like, all right, fine, let's bend our knees and let's bow down. Mm. Because ultimately it is about winning. So we've had elections in this country where the people have shown, like I'm sure if you do a poll on like British people, like we have an idea, like Jeremy Corbyn specifically, I think is a great example because he was not pro-Europe. So for people Mm -hmm. in London, you know, this might be something that you know we dislike but that view even though it's from a different angle it's not an anti-immigration angle that view is a view that's representative of this country based on the referendum mm-hmm. yeah it's no strange isn't it corbyn shouldn't have i'm not saying oh 100 should have won but if the party had not sabotaged jeremy corbyn i think there would have been more of an opportunity for labor i don't think the election yeah, would have been an absolute failure no, I absolutely agree. So this behaviour of the left to not get behind what the people want or get behind what is going to win is super problematic. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with you. If, if they had come together, they could have really led and had more of a nuanced, led more of a nuanced discussion around Europe. I, I absolutely agree because I think a lot of the time it comes down to, you know, when you say to someone, oh, what don't you like about... Sanders what don't you like about Corbyn oh socialist Mm. you go oh what does that mean yeah like oh it's not a good guy do you know (laughs) what I mean and and there's nothing wrong with a thinking someone's a socialist and b that the fact that you think that they're a socialist being legitimate critique but you better be able to back that up yeah yeah you know and I just think that there is a lack of critical thinking and I mean now there what will I... always be, there's always going to be a lack of critical thinking I don't feel like everyone has to think critically but I think that if you're part of an organization a party where people are paid members that's meant to be driving policy in this country you cannot be sabotaging your leadership mm-hmm. yeah the leadership that the party voted for, you can't be sabotaging that leadership in the way that we're seeing with this Labour leaks situation. And that's why I feel like the Labour Party is not going to get in for 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's a wrap. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You need to, it's like you need to scrap it and start again. <laughs> you don't need to scrap it because they don't know what they're doing. Now, I did think I kind of gave Bernie the benefit of the doubt with the Biden endorsement because Biden can't win without Bernie's endorsement, I don't think. He's not going to win anyway. You don't think Biden's going to win? Oh, God, Phoebe, what planet are you on? I think he'll win. You think he'll win? How much do you want to bet? Oh, my gosh, not very much. (laughs) Not very much, okay? Um, How much do you want to bet? A fiver. 
Okay, let's say five. I was about to say a hundred. No. No way. There is no way that Biden is going to win. There is he's not presenting any policy, any alternative. Yeah, but and what people don't get, what liberal pardon no, no, no. What liberal people don't understand is that when people hear the things that Trump says, it's very offensive. Mexicans are rapists, you know, all the horrible races. All of these things are so offensive, right? But in terms of like policy, the Democrats don't do anything for working people. So people whose lives are tough, they're tough under the Democrats, it's tough under the Republicans. Mm-hmm. If you're present a real inspiring like Obama even though it was hollow presented such a message it was like change now like it was so inspiring mm-hmm. Bernie again has inspired people right not enough to win the nomination but he's inspired people Biden isn't people are going to stay at home just like people stayed at home with Hillary they're going to stay at home yes they- I think that you're right but I think that that is just have- voting anyway like you've said before burning or bust I think that there are a lot of people who in in an, a kind of equal measure would say no matter who I'm voting blue and I think that people w- might not necessarily yeah, vote for Biden for for the sake of Biden but I think they might vote for Biden so as to not vote for Trump yeah but I think that percentage is small yeah it's it's strange vote more they're just so much more consistent with their voting like they will actually turn out to vote Mm. they will vote for trump they're very loyal and it's just going to waver on the democratic side like young people won't come out people just won't come out (laughs) it's four more years of trump like it will be strange because usually like on a global scale things do tend to swing yeah but it didn't swing here that's why i was shocked if we look at our election it didn't swing here it still stayed conservative. Yeah. I don't think Democrats offer anything tangible enough to get people to... No, I think that you're right. I actually think that that's fair to say. I don't think that there is no big issue that the Democrats can run on. Yeah. And I think that there are things that they should. And I wonder, will the terrain of coronavirus change that in terms of, listen, healthcare, remote working living wage mate they don't even have sick pay they don't even have maternity pay like the u.s is a third world country like apart from the people that are affluent it is a developing country but it's so strange because i feel like the propaganda machine has gone into overdrive with the u.s so that so many u.s citizens do not realize this is not how you should be living (laughs) you go to sweden and get 18 months of maternity leave and then your partner if you're a heterosexual couple can have 18 months of paternity leave and your child can be three years old before they even have to go into any kind of outside childcare. Yeah, I think the propaganda in the US, like, I mean, apologies to our American listeners, but for people to, to yeah, we would love to hear from you, but for people to accept that there's no sick pay at a federal level, there's no maternity, like, you get 10 days holiday you get 10 days holiday like this sucks like you have to be affluent and you know what some people in europe are probably listening to this or will be listening to this going juliet and phoebe you get 25 days i don't i get 20 and they'll go (laughs) uh are you joking in spain we shut for august we have people for july too and we get holidays on top of that yeah the nordics are shut for july yeah, like, Italy, Italy shut for like July and August. Exactly. No, so 
I think there's a medium ground. Like, I know the US is, is very interesting. So we'll see how all of this plays out. Yeah. But I'm kind of done with the left, kind of over it. <laughs> I'm going to the highest bidder. I am. Uh, I'm sure I said this too already, but after the last general election, when we woke up and the Tories had obviously gotten a huge majority, I just said to Charles, I think I might have to become a Tory because it is too heartbreaking to keep waking up after elections and be like, oh, we've absolutely pied it again. But you, you know? still have hope. You're like, Biden is going to win. I'm yeah, like, I, know. <laughs> I know. So optimistic. It's like, I didn't think we'd Brexit. I didn't think Trump would get in the first time. I kept thinking that uh, we'd have a Labour landslide. I'm a glutton for punishment. Sorry if not. <laughs> oh my God, that was so, so, so good. Do you want to say anything else before we wrap up? I don't think so. Guys, thank you so much for bearing with us. I absolutely loved your feedback on our last episode. It was amazing. So good to hear from you all. I hope you enjoy this one. And yeah, as I said, we are obviously recording from home now we're really keen to to hear your thoughts if there are any topics or any articles or books or anything like that that you're reading that you think we should check out other podcasts tv shows give us a shout please give us a shout um at jules phoebe on instagram we really want to like have more listener-led conversations so you know anything that you would like us to talk about at this time or anything you disagree with or agree with let us know ideas on how we can improve let us know definitely and we will speak to you again very soon ciao bye